Welcome to Essential Ethics and our highlight series from the 2021 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference, which was brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre in September 2021. The conference theme was Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This podcast is the second presentation of the final session of the conference, Deciding with Children, Bringing It Together. The presenter is Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. In this presentation, Lynn considers the meaning of decision-making in deciding with children. In typical Lynn's style, she's able to bring clarity to what decision-making is. She outlines the steps involved and looks at various models based on shared decision-making. Lynn then considers the thorny issue of shared authority and responsibility. In some situations, there are aspects of decision-making that should be done by someone other than the child. Join us as Professor Lynn Gillam presents Deciding with Children, Bringing It Together. If you're going to make a decision, there's two basic ingredients that you need to have. So first of all, you need to understand what the options are. And then you need to, text missing, care about something. Options aren't enough, you have to care about something. So when you have information and some preferences, or goals, or values, or likes, or dislikes, put them all together, then you've got a decision. So, thinking again back to what Doug was talking about on Wednesday, the understanding the options bit involves your rational brain and cognitive skills. And as we've, I think, discussed quite a lot yesterday, the idea of Gillick competence focuses an, uh, a lot on just this aspect of decision-making, uh, the rational brain, do you have the cognitive skills, can you understand? But you also need to care about something which involves both your social-emotional brain, your emotions, what matters to you, but also your rational brain in processing those feelings about what matters. So that's really complicated in that bit. And then in the end, uh, once we're thinking towards what sort of decision we're looking for, it's not just any old decision. By the time we get to adult land, we want uh, adults who are able to make an authentic, considered dare I say it in this context, autonomous decision. That's kind of goal in the future. So it's not just any decision. So this is getting more complicated and it's going to involve lots of bits of your brain, which is probably a good thing. Let's look a bit more at understanding the options. Um, so some of the things you need to do in order to be able to understand the options are to take in new information. And some of that information will be about probability. Now, probability is quite hard to understand. I think lots of kids at school, when they do maths and get to the probability bit, don't like it. Um, stats is a particular area of understanding that I can grab onto for five seconds and then I lose it again. <laughs> so that's, that's a hard bit. You also need to be able to think through a series of or a sequence of events because you need to think through, um, if I do this or choose that, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, probably with varying degrees of probability. So in terms of a cognitive skill, that's quite a step up, being able to think through that. And then not only that, but you need to be able to imagine yourself as a person in those different possible futures. So there's an imaginative leap um, as well as a kind of uh, simply cognitive um, or, or logical uh, sequence of thinking. 
And then finally, you need to be able to prioritise what you care about in relation to these options. And so we're going to need to move into not just understanding the options, but having some values or some things that you care about to bring to those options. So um, you need some goals or values. And as I suggested earlier, what we're looking for is for your involvement in decision-making to work towards things that are your own authentic things that you care about. And I think that's really challenging in the paediatric setting because children mostly grow up in the context of a family and that's where they get their values from. So the idea of this is your authentic things that you care about and believe in and matter to you um, can seem a bit problematic, but I'm thinking back to Ollie yesterday evening and so he, what he cared about was playing tennis yeah. yep about sport um, now where did that come from it wasn't just from his parents so that was something about him so I do think that we can have that concept of uh, you know it is possible to have for a child to have their own values things that matter to them not just absorbing what their parents uh, I guess have um, have uh, instilled into them now, do those things that they care about have to be rational, prudent or sensible in some ways? So I'm very happy to endorse Ollie caring about tennis. I used to play tennis. I liked it not as much as squash, but I liked tennis a bit. Squash is better because you can hit it really hard and it won't go out. So that's my reason for preferring squash. Um, but do, those, do my preferences have to be rational or prudent or is it just enough that they're my preferences. So that's something we need to think about in terms of decision making. Um, another facet of um, goals and values, what you care about, is that they're authentic. We tend to think that they're authentic if they're stable and enduring over time and they're not just at a whim. Uh, and similarly that they're sort of, they reflect a settled self. They're not um, immediate emotional reactions, uh, but that they, they're kind of in some sense coming from deeper in the self than that. And then, as I suggested, if we care about more than one thing, and most people do, somehow we have to prioritise between all the things that we care about. So the message I'm trying to convey here is that there's lots going on in making a decision, and it's clearly not just cognitive skills, and even amongst cognitive skills, there are different cognitive skills and abilities that are needed, and then there's all of this complicated stuff about identifying what matters to you um, and understanding how much it matters to you in comparison to other things. So what I'm going to suggest is that in some contexts um, a child might bring more of one of these than the others, more of the um, social emotional brain, uh, the, what do I care about, uh, and maybe has uh, less capacity particularly in some contexts with the complexity of the information to really understand what the options are. Now, one of the contexts in which I've really thought about this is um, in decisions for girls who have Turner syndrome. So Turner syndrome is a condition where uh, a girl has X, only one X chromosome or um, in some situations, or many I think, um, will have a mix of uh, some cells with one X chromosome and some with, with two. So the overall effect of that is uh, that it's going to cause ovarian failure. Very few girls with a Turner syndrome actually manage to initiate or their body manages to initiate puberty, but even if it does, it's unlikely to keep 
puberty going. So something like 95 to 98% of uh, women with Turner syndrome are infertile. Now, there are options for doing something or attempting to do something about that. Uh, and there's two main possibilities. So a 13-year-old girl with Turner syndrome, particularly if um, she has commenced puberty and so her ovaries are doing something, could essentially undergo an IVF cycle. So that would be uh, hormone stimulation and an attempt to collect eggs um, and then freeze them for later use. And that's likely to be successful um, because we know from adults that we can freeze eggs and that they can initiate um, a pregnancy uh, and frozen eggs work essentially just as, as well as fresh ones. On the other hand, having a stim cycle involves hyperstimulation of the ovaries. It can make you really sick. It certainly makes you, from all accounts, and I've um, not experienced this myself, but from all accounts, it's a really emotionally a kind of roller coaster to go through. And if you're doing it as a 13-year-old with no immediate with no partner, with no immediate goal to have a child, um, you're going through a lot for, a, for something that's very distant and speculative. So there's definitely downsides to doing that. The eggs have to be collected. That's normally done transvaginally. Uh, if it's done transabdominally, then it's now an invasive procedure. So there's a lot going on there. Your other option is um, to take some ovarian tissue, so surgically remove some tissue from the ovary. Um, so you don't get eggs, you get ovarian tissue, and then you can store that. Now we know that for, uh, for women and now even for younger girls who don't have Turner syndrome, that can work to produce a pregnancy, um, for example, by transplanting the ovarian tissue back into the ab abdomen at the time. Uh, that you want it. But this is a surgical procedure, it requires a general anaesthetic, there are risks associated with that. It's also possible that in taking the tissue out, you might hasten the ovarian failure. So now you've taken a chunk of an ovary out, so ovarian failure is going to happen, but now it might happen sooner than it would otherwise have done. Maybe it would have, your ovaries would have got you through puberty, but now they're not going to, and you're going to need hormone treatment even earlier. Now, if you're, are you impressed? I'm impressed. Sonia, Michelle, Yasmin, whoever else is in the audience, I hope I've got most of that right. I find that really complicated. Here's this 13 year old girl with Turner syndrome. Can she work through the ins and outs of that? I think that'd be pretty hard. You've struggled. <laughs> I thought I was doing pretty well, no, John, you were, but it was but you hard did, but work. But it was hard. Exactly. And I went and read the journal article. <laughs> did the 13-year-old with Turner syndrome read the journal article with you? Now, that is a really good question, because that, well, you know, one effective way of, maybe one way of informing her would be to give her the journal article, but, you know, it feels yeah. a bit much. But the other bit that she can have input into in a different way is about the goals and preferences, what matters to her. Does her fertility matter to her? Now, at 13, she may well be thinking, well, I'm not going to have a child. I don't know if I want to have a child. When I was 13, I certainly didn't even, couldn't even imagine that idea. Um, now, in some situations, for some 13-year-olds, they're able, engaging a bit of rational brain as well as some social emotional, to say, all right, maybe I don't want children now, but I can see that I might in the future. Or maybe they've been wrapped up in the idea of having children since they were having a baby, since they were a, a tiny child. Uh, and they can see, yes, that is likely uh, to continue in the future. So the 13-year-old can bring the value, how much do you care about it? 
uh, and that will really help with the decision making. But she might not be in the position herself to make the decision, do I do the, the um, collecting eggs uh, IVF cycle type approach or do I do the ovarian tissue approach or maybe I can do both. So that's maybe where the clinicians come in with advice and also for the parents to be involved in that complicated weighing of the potential risks of each of those options. So I'm hoping I can convincing you that there there's a way for the child to have really meaningful involvement in the decision, but they're not the decision maker in the end. You're nodding, so I'm feeling yeah, I'm comforted. Con I'm, I'm happy. Cla Claire, is that a nod? I, I, can, I can work with that. You can work. Uh, it's not total endorsement. We'll see where we go. All righty. What about the other way around? Um, now, when I was thinking about this, I um, was thinking about, actually, Claire, that th this was prompted by a conversation we had many years ago, I think now, about a child with muscular dystrophy whose parents didn't want him to use a wheelchair or other aids at school, but he was having significant difficulty keeping up with people. He was falling over, he was getting really tired, um, and he had to make a decision um, about whether to use the wheelchair or not. Mm -hmm. Now... Um, that is not necessarily a matter of, if we think about what's going on, it's not a, it's not a complicated decision. Here's the wheelchair, here's what it looks like. Uh, um, you already know what it looks like to not use a wheelchair. Understanding the options maybe is not that hard. But if we think about the complicated mix of values and things that matter mm. that go on in there, that he, on the one hand, he doesn't want to be different um, from his uh, from his peers and being in a wheelchair really picks you out as different. But he also doesn't want to feel tired. He doesn't want to fall over. That's embarrassing. But being like in a wheelchair is embarrassing. So it could be the case that it's actually difficult for this nine-year-old to figure out amongst all of the things that he that matters to him which matters the most in order to make that decision. So maybe that's where some assistance is needed and I guess we would typically think that this is where parents would really be involved in supporting his decision making but clinicians can help too in trying to work through what actually matters the most to you. And we wouldn't want him, I think, we wouldn't say we wouldn't want to decide against a wheelchair right now just on the basis that he has an immediate emotional reaction so for or against. That's, that's, uh, you know, if I talk about coaching... And, and decision making and scaffolding, but you actually are you coaching the the values and preferences out? I think you might have to coach them out to, or to, coach to help the, parents the nine to coach year them old. Out. Yeah, and yeah. maybe the parents would do that. But I'm I'm thinking there's a step between recognizing the things that matter to you and deciding which one matters the most. If you can't have them all, that's really hard. I remember Mark and Katrina, sorry about this, when my kids were young, they had great difficulty in choosing what to buy in a shop. We'd get down to the, you know, the last two books or the last two pieces of sporting equipment, whatever it was. And so in the end, I just put both of them behind my back, shuffled my hands around a bit and said, pick one, and it came out, and then they would say, oh, no, I really wanted the other one. <laughs> so the, the actual you know, making the choice between which matters more to you, that's really hard. Alrighty, what's my other example there? Oh, yes. 16-year-old girl refusing treatment for late-diagnosed cancer. So this... I'm thinking about a situation where um, someone who has a lot of cognitive capacity and 
ability to understand what the situation is, the cancer diagnosis, what the treatment is, what the outcome will be, who is likely to be with and without treatment, who digs her heels in and doesn't want to have treatment for the cancer, not because she's looked at it and said, well, this is a late diagnosis, it's already spread. I don't really think it's worth six months of chemotherapy to get another year of life. I'd prefer to stay well as long as I can um, and stay at home as long as I can. But because she's really angry with her parents and she's angry with her parents because things were going on in the family and her worries about her symptoms sort of got left um, and she blames her parents for her situation and she just wants to make them feel bad. So that is actually what's driving her decision. On reflection, if we could encourage her to reflect, that probably wouldn't be what she would want to have drive her decision. But if you're really angry, it's hard to get past being really angry. So this is another situation where it's not just about her cognitive capacity, it's about what's driving her decision making, which might make us think there's a way she could certainly be involved in discussion about the options. But that bit of bringing the value, she's going to need help to step back from the anger and, are and you think things through. Are you suggesting if there's a line between one of those circles, yep. that means the child uh, either needs help or is incapable? Yes. Really good question, Claire, because I've just put one solid line. This is where diagrams break down, particularly if you haven't got all your words in the circle. Um, uh, yeah, I'm suggesting either, yes, you're absolutely right, they're not capable or they need help. Yep. Uh, and we shouldn't, but we shouldn't think that um, because they can't do one bit, they can't do the other bit. And you're quite right that we shouldn't think just because I put a red line through it, they're not fully capable, that yep. they might be partially capable yep. and could be helped yep. to be more able to do it. So those are some situations, I think I'm convincing you, maybe you didn't need a lot of convincing, <laughs> that there are different bits involved and um, children and young people have different capacity to do different <coughs> bits in different situations. I wanted to comment finally about authority and responsibility. Authority is a word that's come up quite a lot in this conference and we, I think we were particularly contesting that matter this morning when we were speaking with Laney and Doug about those cases and Laney I think was quite strong on parents retaining authority. One of the points I wanted to make was that authority is about power in the end. It's about having the final say, the power of veto. Um, but authority is closely connected with taking responsibility. So authority can sound like a good thing to have. Taking responsibility is a bit more problematic because if you're taking responsibility for a decision, that really means that you're accepting the consequences. And that means, I think, that you can't complain because you've thought it through, you've made the decision, if it turns out badly, it's on your head. I think this has been the conference of metaphors and, or no, proverbs, whatever they are, and there's one in my mind about beds and making them and lying in them. Can someone produce that for me? You've um, made your bed, now lie in it. Is that's the one I want? Is that right, Maria? Absolutely. Yep, that's the one I'm going for. So that's responsibility. Taking responsibility is a big thing, and here's my kind of final thing... I think that the idea of leaving it to the child when the parents can't agree or when the parents can't take the responsibility and don't want to make the decision, this is a problem. 
So I'm hanging my hat on this bit. John, you were hanging your hat quite a lot on the obligation to coach, which I think I might be quite agreeing with you about. Oh. So, But I want to hang my hat here that a child or young person shouldn't be made to take responsibility if they don't want to take responsibility. They might be perfectly capable of doing both and willing to do the decision-making in the sense of understanding the options, bringing the values and say, yes, I can see here's the decision, but not take that last step of saying, and I am making the decision and taking responsibility for it. A child or young person should not be forced to do that. If they don't want to, parents should step up. And in parents... All, sorry? In all areas or are we in health? Oh, let's just confine my Let, big claims to, to, health, to health for the yeah, moment. Yeah, I'd be yeah. interested to think about in other areas yeah. as well. <laughs> Although I can't immediately think of a reason why I would... Make a child. Make a child take responsibility. Um, and if the parents aren't willing, then I think clinicians should step in, and that might involve being really directive with the parents. So, Although, Lynn, just one yes. thing. Um, a possible fly in your ointment. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, Sarah Martin says, but, Lynn, what if children want it, but we don't think that they should have it? Ah. Uh, Yes, so I'm envisaging a situation where they're already bringing the, the cognitive skills for the understanding the option and they've got that capacity to identify their own values, reflect on them, uh, sort out their priorities. So they've got all the other equipment um, and they also are willing to take responsibility. If they are willing, then good. If they want to take responsibility but they haven't got the, all of the previous bits in place, I think we can't let them take responsibility and I'm you know as even as I'm saying that I'm worrying about <laughs> what that might mean so I'm prepared for some pushback on that one well, but well, at least I'll take time to think about it. Lynn I might just think of our model with the three the parent the kid and and, and the clinician in in the circle of doing the part de, de, de toi um, because I'm not even sure then that the, the clinician and child you know the child should be taking the response they might be making having to see that's a sort of a supported and an agreed that's yeah. what i think it's an agreement yeah. model there and i think maybe what i'm meaning by that you've articulated is that the parent is agreeing to the responsibility of it yeah. even if the child um is quite capable of making the decision absolutely with the clinician yep. yeah so they're all sitting at the table um but the parent's there to take responsibility even if the young person has done all of in many ways independently done the heavy lifting of all of the decision making then that last stage where the parent moves back from the table um, that shouldn't happen until the young person's been able to do all of that other stuff mm. yeah so <laughs> let me conclude and then we'll, we'll see what happens what I have left for us though is this problem when you're back to your coaching. I'm saying don't push the child to be more involved in the decision-making than they want to, certainly in the responsibility bit, but I'm also thinking even in the thinking things through, taking on board the information, putting their values on the table, don't push them to be more involved than they want to be. And, John, you're really highlighting the idea that clinicians have an obligation to coach the child to become an autonomous decision maker so once they get into the adult world and continuing their healthcare journey they're able to do that and that might involve taking them out of their comfort zone so I reckon we haven't resolved this yet so I'm still thinking I want to have some limits on the coaching I'm, I'm not Demir Dokic 
in my oh. <laughs> in my coaching uh, <laughs> role in. But you're right. I mean, I think this scope is really is is what's important, isn't it, in, in terms of uh, these things. Lynn, I'm going to ask a question because. Um, you know, it's so exciting to be here, and uh, and I have to give the nursing perspective. There was a really important statement that you said in that the key decision-making steps was the rational ability to make. Now, clearly, I've got a almost five-year-old. Being rational is not uh, his forte. And sometimes, um, you know, the environment we're expecting, you know, a time for a procedure or the availability of the doctors... You know, how important is it for us as a multidisciplinary team to be able to advocate for the child that actually now is not the most rational time and we need to provide the service at a time when the child is much more able to be um, involved in that conversation? Look, fantastic point, Marie, because both even the capacity to think clearly is affected by the environment, but certainly the capacity, I guess, to manage your emotional responses and to think clearly about what matters to you and and why is really affected by the environment. And I do think we owe it to children to give them the best chance uh, so that they can be as involved as possible. Your five-year-olds are not going to make the final decision about whether or not they have a procedure, but I imagine he would actually be quite capable of understanding quite a lot about the procedure and why it needs to be done and telling you and um, whoever's looking after him how he feels about that and what worries him and what he cares about. Um, But if it's all really rushed, there isn't time Mm -hmm. to do it, and if it's happening in a noisy, stressful environment there isn't time. Yeah. Um, so I do think we owe it to children to give them as as good a chance as we can to be as involved as yeah. possible. So a key message really for the nursing teams that will be involved in this is we're at the bedside 24-7, so you know, with the families we often yeah. uh, know how children are coping with yeah. that and that we should be communicating with the other members of the multidisciplinary team yep. to advocate for something being postponed or, uh, you know... Or you know, a little bit more time to talk and um, make a decision with those children. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really thinking back, Maria, to what we heard last night from the young people about um, both Morgan and Rachel, I think, mentioned being uh, feeling that they have to be a good patient, which yeah. means a compliant, cooperative patient, and they, they have to say yes to everything. Yeah. And if, if nursing staff are really well-placed to be aware, perhaps, that that's going on um, and allow space for for children to actually feel that they don't have to say yes every time to everything. Um, And Morgan also made the really interesting point about um, everything running to the hospital's timetable, not to hers. Uh, And even just some sense of, you know, the the child can have a little bit of control or say in the pace of what's happening, I think would have made a huge difference to her. And that seems to me really to be in the nursing domain. That was Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. The 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary and the Humanity Foundation. This podcast was prepared by the Royal Children's Hospital Creative Services with help from Dr Georgina Hall. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a rating and share it with your colleagues and friends. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference held each September, look us up on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. 
Essential Ethics. Be inspired.